Hi there and welcome to Vroom, your weekly motorsport fix with me, Michael Hill. Hello everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode 26 of Vroom. A very uh, belated Happy New Year to everybody. Hope everybody is staying safe and well as we get ready for episode 26 of the Vroom podcast. Almost 6,000 subscribers uh, across our first uh, 25 episodes. Absolutely phenomenal response to the podcast. So a big, big thank you uh, on behalf of me and to Gareth Bouch, who uh, is working feverishly behind the scenes to make these shows as seamless and as entertaining as possible. We're going to start this uh, new year of the Vroom podcast with a bit of news. We will be moving the podcast to uh, bi-weekly. Every fortnight, uh, we'll be having the latest update. A couple of reasons. Obviously, the global pandemic is still playing havoc with the racing calendars. And uh, rather than just waffling on about nothing week in, week out, we're going to just give a little bit more space between the episodes to make sure that we can bring you all the latest news as it happens. Talking about news, well, we can tell you that MotoGP, World Superbike and BSB have all been postponed. The season openers for all three major motorcycle championships have been pushed back uh, by a couple of weeks. Uh, the MotoGP championship will now kick off in Qatar with a double header. World Superbike will now kick off in Estoril. And of course, BSB, the calendar remains the same, just pushed back uh, that month uh, and obviously kicking off uh, in May. In terms of World Superbike, there uh, the calendars are out, the uh, the entry lists are out. So quite a few rookies in the championship. More than uh, more than nine rookie riders will be on the grid in 2021, including a very talented Japanese rider Kota Nozani, who will be joining Garrett Gerloff. Chaz Davies, of course, moves to Team Go 11. Andrea Locatelli, the reigning World Supersport champion, moves up to the factory Pata Yamaha World Superbike team alongside Top Rack Razgatlioglu, while Michael Ruben Rinaldi joins Scott Redding at Aruba Ducati. Tito Rabat uh, moves from MotoGP to the Barney Racing Team. Isaac Vinales also moves up from Supersport. Jonas Folger finds himself on a full-time BMW ride and Eugene Laverty uh, sticks with BMW Power riding the new BMW M1000RR but for the RC Squadra course. World Supersport, well it's a stellar lineup for World Supersport. Uh, more than a dozen podium finishers will line up on the grid and uh, it really, really could be any one of six or seven riders at uh, the very least that could be fighting for the championship. Dominique Agata moves into the series with Tenkata Yamaha from the Moto2 World Championship. Back on the grid is Thomas Gradinger. Back on the grid is former world champion Randy Krumenacker. Jules Cluzel will be looking to try to go one better and win that championship for the very first time. And he's going to be joined by Federico Caricasulo, who's also back in the championship. Throw into the mix Philip Ertel, Stephen Odendahl, Nicky Tooley, who also returns. Manuel Gonzalez, the former Supersport 300 champion. Danny Webb, Rafaela De Rosa. We could go on. Uh, it is a really, really stellar grid. But the big news in World Supersport is that Michelle Fabrizio, uh, former, um, the former World Superbike uh, race winner, the former factory Ducati rider, he will be joining a new project alongside uh, the relatively unknown Shogo Kawasaki uh, and Fabrizio. 
uh, now in his uh, late 30s, early 40s, I think, in fact, uh, Michel Fabrizio will be riding for the MotoZoo Pachetti Racing Kawasaki team. So uh, that is one to look out for. Supersport 300, as far as the World Superbike Championship goes, uh, no longer will there be two groups. There will be 42 riders uh, who will be permanently on the grid. A uh, few new teams coming into the mix as well, including the Vinales Racing Team, which is uh, run uh, by, uh, of course, the Vinales family. Kevin Sabatucci uh, is one of their riders, a former race winner. As far as the Brits go, where uh, Tom Booth Amos will be back on the grid, Indy Offer will be back on the grid, and James McManus uh, from uh, Ireland, uh, Northern Ireland, will be back on the grid as well. Jeffrey Boyce, the reigning world champion, stays on the grid with his MTM Kawasaki team. Uh, a few other changes uh, in the championship, including uh, Hugo De Cancelis, who moves to uh, Kawasaki for the first time, long-time Yamaha rider, back into the sea comes Doran Lorero, the South African. Uh, he was a podium finisher a couple of years ago, not able to race last year because of COVID, but Doran Lorero from South Africa should be one to watch. Anna Carrasco also will be back. She suffered that horrendous injury uh, at the end, or the middle, should I say, of the 2020 season. She'll be back on the grid, as will Mark Garcia. Alfonso Coppola comes back into the championship as well. It really is a stellar, stellar grid uh, and there will be a mix of Yamahas, Kawasaki's and a lone KTM. Victor Stamen, uh, the Dutch rider, will once again be on the grid for the Freudenberg KTM team. MotoGP, well, we talked about that before the winter break, but a stellar lineup throughout uh, all of the uh, the classes, Moto3, Moto2, and of course, the MotoGP World Championship. And uh, before I introduce our first guest, we should just say uh, that uh, we want to extend our condolences from the Vroom podcast to the family and to the friends of Fausto Grassini, the former 125 world champion, the renowned and very much respected team manager, sadly lost his fight against COVID-19 and uh, he passed away uh, just a couple of days ago. Well, we move on with the Vroom podcast and we get ready to introduce, uh, introduce should I say, two riders uh, that uh, have made a name for themselves as racers, as journalists, and one of them even now as a renowned team owner. We're going to be speaking to Chris Ulrich a little bit later on from the other side of the pond. And uh, the American, who has uh, raced in World Superbike as well, will be our second guest today. But up first, we will be talking to Alistair Fagan. Well, a big happy new year to our first guest of 2021 on the Vroom podcast. Alistair Fagan is joining me uh, now. And uh, Alistair, you're not looking too worse for wear for uh, a couple of weeks worth of turkey there, mate. Uh, how's things? Uh, I don't know. I've packed on some timber. I don't know. I've, I've got to get rid of this. It's, uh, <laughs> it's a hangover as well. Happy new year to you. Happy new year. Yeah, great. Well, thank you for, for joining us. I know uh, we've uh, been waiting to get you on the podcast uh, last year as well. So much to talk about. Where do we begin? Do we talk about your exploits on track or off track? Where, where do you want to start? Uh, oh, blimey, it's probably safer on track, really. Are you sure? Again, for those that uh, are tuning in that are not familiar with Alistair Fagan, uh, he is a, a former racer, a bloody good one uh, too, uh, turned his hand to, uh, to journalist testing and, and all kinds of things. So there's quite a lot of exclusives that we're going to talk about. We've never really had a, a, a road tester and a racer that's 
turned their career the way that you have. So quite a lot of things to talk about, lots of things that, that I'm going to be interested in. But let's let's stick with the on-track stuff first then. Um, what got you into, into bikes? My dad was an ex-racer. He um, he did a few sort of decent races. He wasn't he wasn't world world championship. He did a few British rounds and um, got to a decent level. But then when he had me, he stopped racing. And then when I was three years old, classic. He got me a PW50, and that was it. Really, just I just rode that all day every day, and um, and kind of that got me into bikes. And then yeah, from there went to motocross. And then from motocross, I, I was it's quite funny actually. I, I stopped motocross because I I kept hurting myself. Um, I kept having shoulder dislocation. So as you know, when you go up in motocross, you come down and you stop rather than slide. And uh, yeah, I just yeah, my dad went okay, let's go road racing. So I think he wanted me to do that anyway. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. I yeah, we went we started road racing. So it was all kicked off from there. Yeah, and obviously when you got into road racing, things were a bit different back then. Obviously, the championship was still run by by MSV, or it was called yeah. a different thing then. But um, if memory serves, you were part of the the R six Cup. If memory serves, were you part of that? I was. Yeah, yeah. I was. I was actually the last year because <laughs> I really wanted to give the R six Cup a go, but because I was twenty, I thought I was twenty four at the time, and the years before the limit was twenty one. But I think Rob Mack wanted to. Uh, he wanted some more money in his pocket. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, said, right, let's get the numbers up. So he raised the age limit to 24. So, yeah, I was straight away. I was like, right, let's find some sponsors, and uh, we went, we went into that. And yeah, I mean, that was that was brilliant, brilliant series. Yeah, I was going to say, and, and, and again, for those that, that are listening, we have a lot of listeners from from across the pond and, and all around the world. The R6 Cup was certainly, as far as I remember, one of the the first one make series in the UK, wasn't it? I mean, I know that now we've got all these other series like Red Bull Rookies and Asia Talent Cup and British Talent Cup and uh, and they're great initiatives, absolutely, and the sport needs it. But way back, as you said, Rob McElnay, former British champion, he put this together. And I think it also expanded. Didn't they do an R1 Cup as well? I remember John Kirkham racing an R1 Cup and that was all part of this, this same kind of idea, wasn't it? Oh, exactly. The R1 Cup was the year after, so the R6, stopped, R6 Cup stopped and the R1 Cup carried on after that. But yeah, I mean... Darcy's Cup, with all the names that came out of that, I'm sure, you know, don't get me wrong, I'm sure a lot of them would have, you know, risen to the top anyway. But that that series was iconic and people all over the world remember that series. Um, I think it was a good, there was some good documentaries on TV. Um, obviously, brilliant riders, brilliant crew behind, behind the scenes. You know, Rob Mack brought a lot of decent mechanics and it was just a good time. Good, good, just as good off the track. Uh, as it was on the track, so yeah. yeah you really. mentioned documentary that I just I'm remembering um, the the the, com- the comedian, the lady um, Copstick, wasn't it? That uh, hey, yeah, Copstick, yeah, 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 yeah. And, uh, um, again, people people across the pond, I think, what the hell are these two talking about now? But Copstick uh, uh, is a, is a great comedian. Uh, I'm not sure what she's doing now. I think we're still hooked together on Facebook, and she she likes a few things now and again. So I know she's she's still around, but. Uh, that again was a great documentary series. It kind of it focused on the racing, but it also started looking at the individuals within the sport. And as you said, I mean, the names like Cal Critchlow. I mean, you talk about names and what people have done. Cal Critchlow came from there. Tommy Hill came from there. Yeah. John Kirkham. I mean, I mean, there's way more names as well that we could think about. Kieran Clark, who's now a stunt double for Tom Cruise. We were talking about that just before yeah. Yeah. filming. And yourself, of course. I mean, you've gone on to <laughs> things as well. I mean, maybe not world champion, but you've still forged a pretty damn good career for yourself within the sport, haven't you? It wasn't. Too, don't get me wrong. I think as a, if I wasn't a journalist at the time, I wouldn't have got the rides I got after the R6 Cup. But I had some, I had some good results in the R6 Cup, and you know, I went from there to British Supersport, and then British Supersport onto British Superbike. So yeah, I mean, I kind of, 
before all of this began, if someone said to me, you'll be racing in British Superbikes um, in 2009 and having a having a decent go, not looking too silly, I would have said, yes, I'll rip your hand off. But, you know, I think, um, like I said, if, if I wasn't a journalist, I wouldn't have been able to bring the sponsors and the exposure uh, to the seats I had. But, you know, I'm not, I'm under no illusions. You know, I'll, I'll take that any day of the week. It was, uh, you know, doing that job, being a being a journalist um, and racing as well, pretty much full time. That was, yeah, I, I live in the dream, live in the dream. Absolutely. We've had a few younger guests on, on the podcast and obviously my role in the World Championship, I get to meet a lot of the young riders from around the world. Everybody talks about the struggle to find sponsors and the struggle to, to find money. And it's it's always been there hasn't it? it doesn't matter you know whether it's cars bikes cycle racing you know you, you've got to find sponsors you being a journalist i'm really interested did you find it easier i mean you mentioned that it's easier do you think that was just because you had more access to to people higher up the chain or do you think it was because of the exposure that you could give them because i you know i speak to so many riders um especially the young british riders in the world championship now and keep saying to them it's not just about what you do on track of course it is everybody wants to win but it's it's a business, isn't it? And it's become yeah. more of a business. Racing has become more of a business over the last 10 years, for sure. It's about the value that you can give. So do you think you being a journalist, 22, 23, 24, did it make it easier? And, and obviously, how did it make it easier? So at the beginning of the R6 Cup, so this was, yeah, 2006, so 2007, um, I wasn't actually a journalist. So I was still a pub landlord. <laughs> <laughs> oh really oh, yeah stop, i mean stop there stop there Take a break. <laughs> all right let's spend the next couple of minutes talking about this then what was the, what was the name of the pub the, the queen's arms the red lion no the Elhampton inn no it's a little little local pub near me and yeah so i was running that and racing I mean, it, you know it was a if the racing were going to kill me it was owning a pub that was going to kill me because down there you know it was down in somerset and drinking most days and trying to entertain the locals it was just utter carnage and then i sort of stopped <laughs> you know, thursday pack up go racing come back sunday night open on monday and it was just uh yeah it was it was hard work but thankfully i i got a job at fast bikes magazine and that was kind of kicked everything off so beginning of 2007 i had this job at fast bikes and straight away you know all the iconic uh, magazines with shaky and mcwilliams and the, the race riot and the editor at the time, Rich Newland, who's who's now the editor of uh, Motorcycle News, he said, "Do you want a race page?" I went, "Oh yes, my very own race page." Like within a month of working at the magazine, so um, yeah, writing my own column for Fast Bikes, it was just amazing. And um, yeah, so it went from there. Really, I, I I didn't have enough money to start the, to finish the season, and then all of a sudden, working at Fast Bikes, I had a, I had my own page, and at the time they were selling thirty five thousand copies, thirty five thousand copies a month. And it was just a. Uh, it was. A, it went from, well, zero to hero, and it overnight, you no know, pub landlord to 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 fast bikes columnist, and yeah. So we finished the season off. But like you say, going back to your question, if you have, you know, it's all very well having a logo on your leathers and an A-frame outside your uh, your, your awning, and you know, and, and maybe the odd mention on the the microphone somewhere. But if you've got a page or a, a video or something that that offers that exposure then of course it's, it's going to be massive and we found sponsors through the magazine obviously people in the industry and it, it I, don't know, I don't want to be too blase about it but it was quite quite easy i managed to do you know 10 series of racing in bsb funded through through sponsors that through the magazine and and through what i'm doing now so 
That's mega. No, that's that's really good. And I think that is something else as well that a lot of people forget, isn't it? It's it's about being in the right place at the right time. And I remember uh, James Toesland springs to mind, you know, he wasn't necessarily the fastest rider on, on the super team bikes, was he? Uh, no, I think Chris no. Burns was, was winning championships and, and, and James came along and, and he got picked up by, by a chap called Mick Corrigan in the, the CB500s. Right place, right time, excelled in that series. Next thing he's riding, World Super Sport, Castrol Honda. You know? yeah, and I'm not right saying that James wouldn't have made it because James is his great friend and he, he's a super, super talent. And it's a shame that the injury cut short his career. But right place, right time fast-tracked him didn't it and it's that's again what a lot of people don't look at it's uh, again i come back to the point it's yeah you can win races but we've seen it here rory skinner another one that springs to mind super super fast and then kind of just disappears off the radar for a couple of years and in in, you know watching it from the sidelines i don't know rory that well but you watch him riding you think why has that kid not been snapped up by a world championship team why has he just gone under the radar i mean he couldn't even afford to go racing Luckily for Rory, it's all come full circle and he's now going to be on the grid in British Superbike, which is great. But there's a lot more to it, isn't there? I and mean, you know more than, than, than most. It, it's, it's a little bit of luck being in the right time. And if your face fits as well, really. Yeah, I mean, you've got to have the complete package. Like I said, if, you know, if you're, even if you're finishing 6th, 7th, 8th in a British Championship event, you're not gaining the exposure that someone might have finishing 15th with the right, the right package. So, right. you know, sponsors might be happier with, it sounds crazy do you know what i mean but it, it's like i said yeah the complete package and having that um having that extra channel somewhere so um yeah, yeah. no i f- fully agree obviously you continued racing uh, i also did a, a little bit of research i never realized this but you did actually do you, you either rode the tt course or you actually raced Is, am i right in there have i got my yeah raced it oh, yeah tt yeah, so it was a crazy year, really. So 2000... Say, are you mad? I mean, I thought you were mad anyway, and I've known you for a good few <laughs> years, but I mean, I can't imagine what... I mean, I've been to the TT many times. I went as a, as a pillion with my dad and, and, and you know, I've been there on my own and driven around in a car, and I just think it's a phenomenal place, and, and I would have loved the opportunity, still would love the opportunity, closed roads, not to do anything stupid. A 37-mile-an-hour average lap would be great for me, you know, just tootling along on my little two-stroke, or I'd be quite happy, but just the chance to ride the course, closed roads... I, I can't even imagine what it would be like. Um, but to set off going down Glen Crutchery Road, whatever bike you're on, at full chat, I mean, I, I've got no, I mean, yeah, it, ultimate respect, whether you win or you come last, I mean, anybody that rides the TT course just gets my respect. But I mean, what was it like? Because that is completely different, isn't it, to riding short circuits? And, and we've spoke to, again, other, other people. I've spoke to Hickman in the past. And, you know, he still says that he's riding 90, 95%. But I mean, 90, 95%, you know, it's still not much of a margin for, for mistakes there, right? No, I mean, f- for me, I've, I've wanted to do it for years. I wanted to do it f- for, well, ever since I started racing, really. But I kind of, I wanted to give the short circuit thing a go first before I committed to doing it. And then I had a chat with Paul Phillips and we went over there and did the did the thing with Milky, you know, the, sort of, the newcomers introduction with Milky and uh, Johnny Barton. And... Straight away, I was like, you know, I've got to do this. I've, I've really got to do it. And I did in my homework and I studied for about a year solidly, went over there sort of 20 times, did some laps. And um, I didn't want to go straight into a super bike. So the first year, I just did it as a super twin, on a super twin. And um, it was a bit of a strange time because my, at, the, at the time, two weeks before the TT started, my lad was in uh, intensive care on a, on a uh, life support machine with pneumonia. Oh, shit. And I think, you know what? I'm not going to make it this year. I'll just do it. But then he he made this miraculous recovery and 
literally, he came out of intensive care. I kissed him goodbye, and I said, "Right, I'll see you in a couple of weeks, mate." I went to do a TT. It was the it was the craziest point in my life, without doubt. Um, my head wasn't it was it wasn't in the right place. It was a bit of a mess, but I did. I set out there to do what I wanted to do, and my limit, my target was 105 mile an hour lap on a super twin, which wouldn't have been too far away from winning the Max TT. And I did 107 mile an hour lap, and I was absolutely buzzing. Um, but yeah, it is without doubt the best experience of my life. You know, they say having kids and getting married is is the best days of your life. Well, they are closely followed by the TT because that is. Just incredible. No, nothing like it in the world. And ne- then nothing will ever replicate that. So, yeah, yeah I mean, yeah, I mean, again, we record this on Zoom and again, we haven't uh, we haven't been brave enough yet to subject our, our listeners to uh, to making this an audio uh, and video uh, footage as well. But I mean, again, just looking at you describing that and the way that you're talking and your facial expressions, I mean, you're passionate about the TT and that's clear. I mean, you can probably hear it in your voice, but I mean, I mean, 107 mile an hour. I mean, that is not hanging around, is it? I've done 100. And, I think I did 112 mile an hour on the PS2, the new game, um, and that scares <laughs> the crap out of me. I mean, the amount of times I've gone through someone's front door, it's just, uh, it's, it's not, uh, yeah, it's not for the faint-hearted. But I mean, obviously, back in the day when you did that, uh, the TT, there was only four no years ago. Back in the day, <laughs> was it four years ago? You did 2016, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. So yeah. was that first TT game out then? I'm trying to work out whether you would have. What I was I'm trying to allude to whether you would have had the PlayStation to practice on is what where I was going with. No, it. I didn't. No, I didn't practice. No, no, no. I just. Have, have you actually played the game? Then obviously now that you're a you know an accomplished journalist as well, do you get to try all these games. Do you, do you think it's actually that realistic? I mean, I mean, it, it looks realistic to me from what I can remember driving around in the car observing the speed limits. But it, I don't know. What, what's your take on all of these games that come out? It's realistic in the fact that because it's all um gps you know uh copied now everything is exactly where it should be and that is brilliant for learning the circuit but i just can't get on with the physics of the bike i just think it's a lot of i think it's yeah, a lot of rubbish. I'm, 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 I, can't, there, I, can't, yeah. I can't i can't just get on with it you know i i can't stay on the bike for more than 10 seconds so if that was uh if that was a real life barometer then i would you know it wouldn't be yeah. successful but yeah. i think the 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 ride games and the gp MotoGP gp games are really good what what Mars done have done with that done with those is is really good but yeah the tt game is not my i can't get on with it no it's not my cup of tea yeah no for sure stick to stick to the real thing yeah obviously let's fast forward um sort of to, to now and obviously you've you've become a really accomplished journalist you're also doing a lot of road tests uh, again for the benefit of people abroad you can see uh, what alistair's doing uh, on various roads you've ridden in some some great exotic places as well to talk talk us about what life on a bike is like now then um well before this year before before last year before 2020 then um I think that's a, that's probably a safe bet because you know 2020 was just a write off. I mean, we had probably had you know four or five flights rather than the 30, 40, 50 that we that we normally have. But you know, it's, uh, you know, as a as a tester, there's lots of launches, bike launches, manufacturer of bike launches. So you know, from October to March, you can expect to be away, kind of once a week, maybe twice a week if you're lucky or unlucky, whichever way you look at it. Um, and yeah, we fly all around the world. It's 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 again it's it's living the dream it's uh we're very lucky to do what we do but i mean the money is absolutely shocking in the motorcycle industry it's in, or motorcycle journalism but you know we get to fly all around the world and i i've been to places that i would have never normally have, have, have traveled to so you know we've been to you know australia to japan qatar all all over the place america you know it's um 
a lot of the time it they are manufacturer launches so we you know we can't we can't sort of have as much fun as we'd like to it's it's all led by the manufacturer so there's a sort of strict you know you get in a plane you fly to the hotel you get get off the plane you go to the hotel um you go to a track or you go on the road ride and that's that's pretty much it there's a set structure but don't get me wrong it's still it's still a fantastic experience I was reading as well some of the, the bikes that you've ridden in the past. Um, you rode Kevin Schwantz's RGV 500. I mean, bloody hell. Talk, talk about, you know, uh, back in the day as I was as a joke. I mean, that must have been a beast to ride. I mean, I was watching again the other day, the un, is it the Unridables? Uh, yeah. That thing with Matt Oxley. And, and then they have the interview with, with Rainey and Lawson and stuff. And just remembering as a kid growing up and watching that. I mean, Wayne Rainey is, is my hero. That was one of the reasons I started into racing. So just watching the, you know, the, the 500 Yamahas and Lawson, Schwantz, Gardner doing when he came into it and you got to ride Schwantz's bike. I mean, what was that like? Where, where was that? That was at Goodwood um, up the okay. hill. So not only had I never been to Goodwood and never even seen the place, I I jumped on kept the, the, you know, it was a 93, so his championship winning bike. Yeah um and it was that that's a bucket list thing you know that i've I, those like you i grew up watching you know in the 80s 90s watching the 500s and schwantz doing uh rainy gardner i mean wayne gardner's my he's my he's my proper hero but yeah those those two straight bikes i've wanted to ride for years and years and years so when i got the phone call and said do you want to ride schwantz's bike up the hill i said yes i'll be there and uh to top off i was a little bit hungover as well so not only had i jumped on this bike with carbon brakes and cold tires and never seen a circuit before. I was a little bit, a little bit over. So it's all a bit, bit of a whirl, but yeah. So, I mean, the, the first thing I tell you, I nearly crashed it because the carbon brakes is like, still had carbon brakes on. And I had no, because um, going back a little bit that we had, um, oh, I can't forget his name, Harris. His name is Harris. Oh, Lester Harris. Lester Harris. Was it Lester or the, what's the other guy? What's his brother called? Oh, you've got me now. I don't know. Oh, the, one of the Harris brothers. Anyway, so he he warned me. He said, look, go steady the first time. Because I rode it twice. He said, go steady. The first time you'll know the, the carbon brakes are rubbish. They'll do nothing. Sure enough, went into the first major left-hander at Goodwood. Nothing, nothing, nothing. So I was sort of pedaling down. Feet feet were sort of doing the Flintstones and oh, proper panic. I just managed to stop it before hitting the hitting the tire, the, uh, the, the straw bale wall. But yeah, I mean, what a bike. I was just surprised how easy it was to ride, you know, because it was a, all right, 93 is quite, still quite, you know, sort of middle of the sort of 500 era, really. But it was still quite talky, still quite usable. Um, I know the Hondas probably weren't, but that, that Suzuki was, it felt so easy to ride. So it's interesting that you say that, because again, when you, you talk about Wayne Gardner and he's very vocal about the, the the Honda and saying it was just unrideable. The thing yeah. was a beast. And like yeah. we see the amount, sadly, of crashes that, that Wayne Gardner had. I mean, uh, I mean, phenomenal ride. I remember, was it uh, was it 1990 when he, he came back from injury and he was racing the, the Phillip Island and the whole fairing was hanging off the bike and and he went on to win the race with the Rothmans Honda, didn't he? And, and sent yeah. the place absolutely crazy. And he said that the target was, just for the fans, he was going to do two laps and pull in. And then the adrenaline kicked in. And then before he knew it, it was only two laps to go. And he thought, oh, fuck it, I can win this. <laughs> it just, yeah. And he stayed out. And I mean, that is probably one of the most iconic moments from the 90s, sort of the end of the 1990 season. And I remember everybody just flocking onto the onto the track and on the slowing down lap, him just getting mobbed. I mean, that was a true gutsy ride, wasn't it, for, from Gardner? I mean, you obviously remember it as, as well as me, but that was phenomenal scenes on a, on a bike that, as he said, wanted to basically kill him every every second corner. 
it was crazy. I mean, I, you know, you could visibly see how difficult those Hondas to, were to ride. And I guess that's why, because Wayne used to smash himself up and he used to get on a bike every weekend. He try at least tries to get back on a bike. And, you know, I grew up watching that and I actually, I actually did that. I, I broke my wrist as a six year old and, um, I was like, Wayne Gardner's my hero. I need to ride again. So two weeks later, I got back on my little Wee 50 and my dad stupidly let me out and I rode with a cast on, broken my right wrist and went straight into a wall again and broke my wrist and broke my right, the, the cast off again. So yeah, <laughs> those Wayne proper, proper hero. I know you get to work with them now. So, um, yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm really fortunate. Yeah. I work with uh, with Remy, and I got to know yeah. Wayne uh, Wayne quite well. And uh, again, we were saying I'd love to have him on the uh, I'd love to have him on the podcast, but we'd need a bleeper. That's the problem. You know what I mean? You'd never be able to hear what he said. It would just be like a new musical song because every other word would be a bleep. But he's a great, great guy. Really, yeah. really great guy. And uh, uh, yeah, no, for sure. What did you make of, of 2020 from a racing point of view? Obviously, I've got to ask you. You're a journalist. You, you cover obviously road testing, but obviously you follow the racing as well. A really strange year. Talking about injuries, I mean, the biggest injury of the year, Mark Marquez. Um, you know, you can argue now and look back and say he shouldn't have raced in Jerez uh, with the injury. But, you know, going back to the very first race, he, he almost crashed on lap three or whatever it was, lap four, saved it. I mean, if he hadn't have gone down, we would have been potentially talking about Marquez winning the 2020 World Championship after pulling off the save of the century at Jerez. And sadly, we're talking about him now maybe needing a, a fourth operation. He's got an infection. You know, there's all these rumours flying around and they have been all over the winter break about whether he's even going to race next year. Will Davizioso get his seat? There's rumours saying that Alvaro yeah. Bautista is going to take his seat. And you know, what, what do you make of, of 2020? I mean, from a racing point of view, it was fantastic. But... You've got to feel for, for Marquez. You know, whether you're a fan of Marquez or not, I mean, he is something special on a bike, isn't he? You can't take that away from him. Oh, no, he is. I mean, I, I personally think he is the most talented guy ever to to grace GPs. I really do. His his natural talent is all too obvious. And it, it, it's the little things as well. Like, you know, maybe the armchair experts won't notice it, but as a as an ex-racer or, you know, still dabbing my toe in, but... As a as an ex racer, I think some of the stuff that he does, only some people will appreciate. And he is, uh, it, it's it's gotten to see. I really didn't want him to miss this year at all because, you know, I would like to see Mir and all the other young guns come through and and potentially challenge him. But saying that, it has given us another dimension. It's been crazy, utterly ridiculous. You know, was it nine? Is it eight or nine different winners? Yeah, nine winners yeah. in yeah. GP. And, yeah. and again, I put a tweet out the other day, obviously, I like my statistics. And if you kind of go through all the championships, you know, nine winners in GP, seven individual winners and 10 or 11 podium finishes in World Superbike, eight winners, 10 podium finishes in BSB. I mean, you extrapolate that right the way through the, the Spanish championship, the French championship, the Australian yeah. championship. I mean, winners alone, and that's just in the top class. We've probably had more than 40 winners. You break it down into Moto2, Supersport, I can't remember a year that we've had 100 winners or 150 people standing on a podium across all the major championships. I mean, it has been an incredible season 2020, wasn't it? I don't I don't know. Is it? Is it? We, I mean, obviously, the pandemic's to blame for the lack of uh, sort of lack of racing and the, the gaps uh, that we had and the lockdown, etc. But there's probably one good thing that's come out of it is just the, the utter chaos it's caused on, on track because, you know, it's almost like the lottery numbers have come in and they're just picking out random numbers for people to win races. And I just, I mean, you know, I think we can, 
a lot of people can be short-sighted and 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 be a sort of victim of the current times but the fact is 2020 has been the best season of racing that we've ever had i can safely say that yeah and obviously looking ahead then into to 2021 um few riders have moved teams both in gps bsb we're seeing new riders and it was announced just before the christmas break that even you know dan linfoot the tag team are now going to run hondas they're not going to run yamahas so there's another honda team on the grid in bsb World Superbikes, you know, prior to the Christmas break, almost 20 riders confirmed, still seven or eight riders to confirm, people moving teams again. Chaz Davies going to go 11. You know, all these other changes, the, the changes obviously with Laverty going to a new team in BMW, Vandermark going to BMW, so many changes. Do you think that 2021 on paper can exceed what we've we've seen in 2020? Um, certainly from a MotoGP point of view. Again, I don't I I wouldn't like to see. I don't want I don't want Marcus to be on the sidelines. I think it'd be great for the series if he's back in, but I mean I'm not so convinced he will. Mm. But going, you know, starting off in GPs, I'm I I firmly believe we'll have another banger again. I really do. I think um, there's enough talent on the grid, and there's enough kind of there's a, there's enough uh, changes next year to make it a bit spicier. And uh, well, Superbikes again. I'm not too convinced whether um, anyone can get close to Johnny Ray, but Scott's Scott Redding's second season. I really do hope being a Southwest lad like myself, um, I really do hope he can get a bit closer. And you know, he's shown that he can do it. Uh, I just hope he can do it over a full season. Yeah, and of course, um, in, in superbikes particularly, we've seen a lot of new stars: Michael Rubin, Rinaldi, Garrett Gerloff. Yeah. Finally, the American yeah. flag is waving again. Um, do you, are, are these the kind of guys that we need to be looking at to challenge Jonathan? And let's take nothing away from Jonathan. It does really piss me off when you see these armchair warriors. Oh, Jonathan, it's like when they talk about Formula One, is it? Oh, they're only winning because they're in the Mercedes. And it's like, well, look at the Grand Prix in Sakia. George Russell driven the car for the first time and he was handing it to Bottas on a plate. Yeah, right? yeah, so, yeah. you know, the guy's still got to twist the wrist. So let's not take anything away from Jonathan. But, you know, he he is the complete package, isn't it? You were talking earlier on about being the complete package. That is a clear example in racing terms of someone that has every piece of the jigsaw. He's got the bike that's capable of winning. He's got the great home life. He's got the support from, from Tash and the kids and all his family, which is a big tick if you can go away, especially in COVID times. You know, as you were saying in the past, you've had to deal with potentially some things happening in families, kids in hospital and stuff. He's, you know, he's, he's been very blessed that everything's going well in his family life. Then on top of that, he's got a team that is built around him. You know, I mean, that is JR's team, isn't it? You know, and they keep saying that, you know, the JR, the 65 team and Pere, uh, Arturo, all the guys around him. And it's, they all believe that they're all working for him. And then on top of that, he can go out week in, week out and deliver. And when he has a bad weekend, even when he crashes and runs over Chaz Davies, like it was in 2019 in Mizano, he gets back on and still finishes third. And you're just like, bloody hell, like give them a chance. You know, I mean, it's, but I mean, it, it is going to take, as you said, a complete season of no mistakes for anybody to get close to, to Jonathan, isn't it? I mean, we, how many times has Chaz come close? I remember 2017, was it, when he strung the last 10 races together and I think he won eight of the last 10 or nine of the last 10. You think, shit, if you could have just done this at the beginning of the year, we would have had a real fight. It's just unfortunately crashes, a few mechanicals, it doesn't happen. So whoever it is, it's going to take a full season of no mistakes and scoring points, isn't it? It really is. Yeah, I think, you know, going back to JR, he's a machine. Um, that team is incredible. I think, you know, Alex Lowe's isn't a bad rider, but, you know, he hasn't quite managed to get anywhere near JR on, on the same bike. And, you know, that is, for, for JR to do that season after season after season, that is, it just gets it in my book. And 
I, I, I truly believe, I don't think there's anyone else that will be able to challenge JR other than Scott Redding next year. I think that's just my personal opinion. Um, I'm gutted to see Chaz leave the team. I thought that, um, I know he's he's back on a Ducati with Go 11, but I, I, I was genuinely gutted to see Chaz leave because, uh, I don't know, I mean, Rinaldi's obviously a talent. Um, he's Italian. He fits in nicely at Ducati, but I just would have liked to see Chaz sort of finish off where he finished or started off where he finished last season um, into this season. Yeah, and it's going to be interesting, isn't it? Because they're saying now that, you know, it looked as though Chaz was going to go in a completely different direction, leave the manufacturer or potentially, as some people were saying, depending which media you read, that he was going to stop altogether. You yeah. know, he's going to be with Go11. It's a team that's won with Rinaldi on an old bike. Um, and my understanding is that it's not going to be an old bike. Ducati will give him the same spec bike as the factory team. He'll have factory technicians in the garage. The only thing that's really changing for Chaz then is the colour of the bike on paper is what we see. So there's no reason that he couldn't go out there. And, and you know, as you say, if he can start the season as he finished it, he could be a contender. I mean, he's a former world champion. He's finished, what, third and second, I think, for five years in the championship. You know, he's, he's yeah, yeah. come close. So, you know... But again, he's had the inconsistency, hasn't he? He needs a consistent season. Yeah, I think, you know, but you look at the last couple of races and what he did on that bike. And I don't know. I mean, I've, I don't know. I haven't spoken to Chaz about it um, and I haven't been inside the paddock enough to know. But something clicked towards the end of the season and I hope it, hope it can click and go 11 because he thoroughly deserves it. He, I, there's any, from a personal experience, if there's any, anyone I want to win the championship, I'd love to see Chaz do it um, before he retires. Yeah, I think a lot of people would love to yeah. love to see that. Final uh, final question, Alistair, because we've been chatting for, for half an hour. And uh, again, I do get paid by the word. So for me, we can keep going for another half an hour. It's not, not a problem. <laughs> I'm going to put you on the spot here. Obviously, it's our first podcast of 2021. I want a prediction yeah. from you. Where, who will be the world champion in MotoGP? Who will be oh, the superbike champion? No. Who will be the British superbike champion? And I don't. I just want what, one name. If you had to put your if you had to put your money on it. <sighs> He's swearing under his breath now, ladies and gents. I can't oh, repeat what I've uh, witnessed. MotoGP. Um, Rins. Okay. And is that Rins irrespective of whether Marquez is back on the grid? Yes. Okay. What about uh, World, World Superbike? Scott Redding. Okay. And BSP? British Superbike. Uh, um... I wish we could put the video in now because this is great. The, the facial expressions we are getting is, is a show on its own, ladies and gents. Josh Brooks. Oh, you're going for Brooksy again? Yeah. Okay, so there we have it. Uh, first predictions of 2021. You know what? We, that means we are going to have to get you back on at the end of the season. Uh, Love to. Just to Love you, mate. Yeah. Uh, or, and say that you got it completely wrong uh, or to uh, just hang our heads in shame because you actually got it spot on. I mean, I'm known for my predictions. Uh, I mean, the, the, the wildest one I ever had was uh, and, uh, Alessandro Andreozzi winning for Pedicini Kawasaki at Laguna Seca. <laughs> and I remember Steve English and Greg Haynes ripping the piss out of me. He did four corners before he put it into the barriers. So, um, yeah, my, my predictions are hopeless. But um, I don't know, I, th I think... If I was to put a prediction on it, and I, I don't normally put predictions out there, I think you're, you're not going to be far off with Rins. Uh, I think if Mark Marquez is back, he will be the favourite for the championship. Um, I'd actually really like to see Alex Marquez have a good season, and I'd like to see Nakagami win a race. But I think, yeah, I think if Marquez is back, Marquez will be the champion. I'd probably go with you on Rins. I'm going to stick my neck out and say Chaz Davies or Jonathan Ray for the championship. 
or Scott Redding Ooh. or Garrett Gerloff. <laughs> um, <laughs> actually, you could go through. I mean, if you, but if it's based on this year, again, Gerloff could be a real outside bet, couldn't he? he could be. The problem why I yeah. don't do I don't do bets because I can't just stick to one name because then my brain starts going and I start thinking of all the other permutations. And BSB, well, I mean, it's been so unpredictable for the last five, six years, hasn't it? I mean, and also, will they keep the showdown? That's another question. Um, will, will they keep it or not? I mean, I, I was never a fan of the showdown, I've got to admit. No, I, mean, I understand why they did it. But if you look at this year, they didn't need the showdown to keep the excitement. No, exactly. So, I mean, that's another question, another show completely. But what, what's your feeling on that then? And I said last question, but what, what, what's your thoughts on the showdown? Should it be a, a conventional championship or should we have the showdown? I personally hate the showdown. I mean, I, I get what they do. It. It's great entertainment, but I just, you know, I'm, I'm crap at maths anyway. So when you start doing all this rider credit, podium credit points and everything else, I don't know, just uh, it's a load of bollocks personally. I, th- I think keep the traditional championship like every other championship and maybe, you know, Stuart Higgs and BSB have been pioneers for crazy stuff and kind of, uh, you know, changing the way championships uh, are formed and, and finished so maybe there'll be something else but no keep it keep it traditional and i think going just briefly about the bsb i think the honda will be strong again this year um they were strong in last year but it'd be interesting to see who whether this uh, japanese guy uh, comes over and actually rides it i can't remember his name the guy who tested it oh uh, ryu mizuno yeah yes um or whether or not they'll find someone else but yeah the the second seat um isn't filled yet so yeah, it will be interesting if that Japanese yeah. guy comes over. I saw him racing in the Asia Championship, and uh, he's fast. And, and again, we're yeah. seeing also in World Supers now as well. I mean, Yamaha have drafted in Kota Nazani. And yeah, he looks great. Cra- his style is crazy. I love it. Yeah, yeah. Yes. It's, but it's what we need, isn't it? We, we're going back to the old days. We we're talking about the good old days of the 500s when it was a World Championship. You had 17, 18 countries on the grid. Yeah. We're getting back to that now, aren't we? Which is... Which is what, which is great to see, isn't it? It's good for all the fans. We just need to get World Supers going back to Sugo or something like that. That would be uh, that would be epic. <laughs> or not it de- depends whether you talk to Carl Fogarty on a Monday or a Tuesday as to whether Sugo is a good place to go or not isn't it but uh, Alistair thanks again buddy for, for joining us oh, uh, thank you mate we are been an honour later in the season uh, hopefully restrictions are lifted uh, in the not, not too distant future and we can see you out and about uh, all over the place uh, doing uh, various tests and please as I said come come back and chat to us uh, later in, uh, in the 2021 season that'd be great Absolutely. to catch up thanks mate Well, up next is uh, a rider, a former rider, should I say, a team manager, an accomplished uh, uh, businessman uh, within the world of motorcycle racing, someone that I'm proud to call a friend. Chris Ulrich is uh, dialing in from Alabama. Chris, uh, thanks for dialing in. Uh, how are you, mate? Good. How are you? It's yeah, very good. Thank you for taking the time out to uh, to join us. I'm not sure whether that introduction was was right. There's a whole list of superlatives that I could give to uh, to talk about you. Uh, but for the benefit of, of our listeners, uh, you've been in the, the world of motorcycle racing for, for way more than two decades. I mean, you had a career that spanned uh, two decades. Uh, you've raced in World Superbike. Uh, you're, of course, uh, the editor of Road Racing World, which is a, a very popular online uh, platform which is providing news and has done for for many many years. Uh, on top of that, you also run uh, the uh, the sort of the, the flagship Suzuki team, if we can call it that now, since Yoshimura Suzuki are no longer involved in Moto America. Your team has been the the reference team uh, for the Superbike Championship. Uh, but you don't just race superbikes; you guys are racing Supersport with Suzukis, which I know a lot of people listening want to talk about. 
You've also been massively involved with a lot of fundraising to do with rider safety, which we'll talk about, and the two-seater, which is where I want to start, because uh, I uh, was fortunate enough last year to, uh, well, I don't know whether I was fortunate or daft enough, I don't know what, uh, to do this Uh, two-seater. A little bit of both, yeah. Talk to us about the two-seater, because uh, it's a great initiative. Uh, It raises a lot of money, and obviously we filmed it as part of Moto America Live Plus. Uh, and for me, it was uh, a massive eye opener. I didn't realize it was that possible, or it was possible to go that fast, twos up around Moto America. I've got the on, on, uh, online footage, which I've put on my YouTube. We did 176 miles an hour, twos up across the start and finish at Road America. I couldn't believe it when I saw the actual dash cam when we got the video back, but uh, an incredible experience. And, um, you know, publicly, thank you for not stacking it because uh, I've got to tell you, mate, I, I had a few twitchy bum moments, mate. I was petrified. I mean, it was, but it was great fun. Yeah, I've, I've done, uh, I think the count now is like 1,500. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't, um, I do them for the public once a year, you know, otherwise they're all at the, all at the Moto America races. So you get about 15 to 20 per weekend, depending on our time slots. But, uh, that program started in 2001 and it was my dad, uh, my father, John Ulrich, who's the founder of our team and, and the magazine and everything. We're sitting around at uh, VIR and, you know, it's middle of June. It's hot, hot out there. And we had this one journalist, mainly, you know, he was a local guy, not, I really used to cover in motorsports and VIR had just reopened at the time. And he said, well, you know, you're just sitting on a motorcycle. Is that really a sport? Yep, it is. Come right here. Come this way. And um, of the group, uh, I think most of the, most of those local and mainstream journalists suited up. One got his leg through the, through the, got his leg through the pant of, a, you know, the bottom side of the leathers and, and tapped out. And um, so it, that, that's where it really started. It started as a media education, you know, just for mainstream, mainstream and local media at, at covering motorcycle races. Because like we could sit here and we're, we're, we're bike fanatics, right? We love motorcycles. I've, I've, been, I've been in the racing industry since I was born because my, you know, my father's been in, in motorcycling journalism since, since 1973, I believe. So, um, you know, from day one, I'm, I was in the bikes. I mean, I'm, I'm one of four siblings here and, and for, that my parents have, and I'm the only one really in the bikes. So it's, it's, I was, I was crazy about them from the start, but we, we know about it and we, we can talk about it. We can use all the jargon and do all the other stuff we can, but you, you get to a regular old person, a non, non-motorcycle person, and you can explain all the great sensations that we have from motorcycling, the, the thrill, the adrenaline, the, you know, the thrill of winning, right? That like, and that addiction to winning, you know, when you win a we win a national or something like that, there's 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 few things that that rival that feeling, um, in everything that we that we do. And so you'd explain it. It was a hard time; they weren't understanding it. And so it's like, okay, what's a better way to for them to figure it out besides actually riding the bike? Throw them a set of leathers, get all the safety gear, put them on the back of a bike, and go ripping down the front straight away at a place like VR or Road America or Road Atlanta, and uh, they understood it pretty quick after that, and they understood why we why we love motorcycling so much, and and why racing so exciting, and it helped them, you know, create a better story. And then I took over the program in two thousand four, uh, and um, started the fundraising activities for the Road Race World Action Fund, which deploys air fence at all the Moto America races, track days. Uh, club races there's some actual you know a uh, ccs asra has quite a big fleet of air fence um, a lot of different tractor orbs now do do too 
And uh, I just started it in, in 2005 as a way to, to um, I had a teammate that got hurt from missing, missing some air fence at Sonoma. And um, wanted to raise some money for him for his medical bills. And then uh, any overage beyond that, then kind of split the cost between, or split the, the money raised between that, his medical bills and, and the road race world action fund, which it just kind of went from there. And that event, particular event would happen in, in Southern California in November every year. It's happened every year, it, uh, except for, it didn't happen in 2016 because I was hurt, um, recovering from shoulder operation. And it didn't happen this year because of COVID. But, uh, you know, it was every year, every year since 05. Um, and that's where it started. And then when I retired from racing, we, uh, Chuck, Chuck and the Moto America guys were after us to do, we had been doing the two seat program just on our own, right. Reaching out to, to media at racetracks and doing it, um, you know, getting, getting the media activation ourselves and getting the track time from the track. Um, they brought it all in house. They started, you know, they, they enjoyed it. You know, they, they wanted us to do, do the program and supported the program. So they brought it all in house and they wanted us to, uh, to run it and a lot of the track time accordingly for, for media. And then they wanted a VIP program. And so once, uh, once I stopped racing in 2016, that, that, that kicked off full time. So I, I, I just, yeah, right I think in. it's, uh, I think it's great. And uh, I know when we, uh, we filmed that it's uh, at road America uh, in 2019, it was, I was blown away. I mean, obviously I've seen the bikes and I've seen how meticulous your, you guys are and the, the crew and the team that you put together. So I knew the bike would be, would be quick, but like I said, I, I didn't think we could go that quick twos up. And, uh, and you said afterwards, uh, oh, we could have gone even faster. And I'm thinking, bloody hell, like how much, you know, I mean, I think I had my elbow on the floor at one point on the yeah. seat. I mean, we, we were proper going for it and uh, it, it was great fun. I remember you also telling me that um, you had uh, a, a pretty special pillion once. Uh, was she was she in her 80s or in her 90s? Uh, can you tell us 92. That? She was 92. Yeah, 2017, 92-year-old woman that uh, she... She's on the board or one of the founders of, of Broster Company, and they brought her up, and she she went for a ride. She went 112, so that was uh, you know it was a, definitely man. She had to do the medical check and do a lot of other stuff, and then they did it for uh, for a bit of a PR deal. And um, yeah, so doesn't matter, young old. Um, obviously, for the for the Moto America stuff, we like you to be uh, um, 18 years old, but if you can um, you can you can do them if you're 16 with a parent uh, there. So, but. The big, the big deal is the experience being on the racetrack at, at a Moto America race with, with all the fans and all the crowd and the TV and all that fun stuff. And like uh, pre COVID, right. We, we used to do them on Sunday with during fan walk. And so we'd be ripping around people on the, on the wall. Like Road, Road America was actually pretty fun because they'd be hanging over the wall. We buzzed, right. buzzed it a bit. I got in trouble a couple of times for doing that, but. Yeah, you it, did get uh, pretty. You did get pretty close to the wall. I was thinking, bloody hell! Like, it was, but it was great. Honest to God, I mean, uh, I could have a podcast just on that. I mean, it was such a great experience. And and again, you know, I've never been to Road America before. I did a couple of laps on a scooter just to kind of get my bearings before doing some commentary. But going at the speeds, you know, very similar to what the racers would be doing, gives you a completely different perspective of, of Road America. I mean, uh, just one track that that I was fortunate enough to go to last year. What a facility. I mean, it really, yeah. really is a cracking circuit, isn't it? Yeah, it was, it's, it's one of the best in the U S you know, if they, uh, it, it used to be like, so that chicane off the back, you know, that the first year chicane, uh, that they put that in 2003, but we used to go through that, that right-hander 
out, out of the carousel and go through that right-hander that was there that, 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 that it came replaced like fifth gear on a 750 about flat. So, uh, but anyway, you, you got the light version of that. It's, wow. it's a great track. You know, it's, it's one of the big iconic tracks in the U S they do a really great job for motorcycling now. And they've done a lot of, a lot of safety improvements. So it's, um, and fans are so, so good up there and, and it's always fun to come back, but in terms of perspective and, and gnarliness, yeah, you picked a good one. Probably Road Atlanta. Road Atlanta would probably be a little more gnarly because of the back straight, but yeah. No, it was good. It's just a shame that we couldn't actually use any of the uh, the audio because everything had to be bleeped. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, it, it happens. Yeah, the, the actual content is great. It's just uh, you don't hear me commentating, which is not a bad thing. I hear thousands of people now listening to this going, thank God he shut up for at least two or three minutes. <laughs> You're yeah. going to be getting royalties, mate, for getting me to be quiet. Um, let's just very quickly focus on your, your racing career. As you said, 2016, you, you stopped through injury. But, you know, it's, it's very easy to, to talk about motorcycle journalists who were racers and you know a lot of people that armchair racers as I call them will sit on social media and they'll go oh but he wasn't very fast you were very fast I mean you won national races you won titles you you know um how how difficult was it for you though knowing that um you know you come from a from a racing background with your dad and the journalism things how, how difficult was it for you to, to make that transition uh, from from journalist to to racer or vice versa, because you kind of did it both ways, didn't you? You were journalist racer, and then you stopped, and then went into journalism a bit more with with team management. So you kind of you did a full three hundred and sixty. Yeah, it's. Um, I mean, the, the racing thing kind of came about when I was always. I got started racing a little bit late in life, like in, compared to a lot of these kids now. Started at age thirteen. I wasn't a very good student, and my dad used racing as a carrot to get me to not be an idiot. So um, it turned out pretty well. Um, you know, like. Got, got going pretty quick, you know. Once we started the racing adventure, it was like, you know, I was, I was being quite a, quite a much better student quickly. Um, uh, so that was a good carrot. And, and we didn't really start with the aspiration of are you going to be a professional motorcycle racer? It was just more of my own ambition. And I had a great support network and was able to do that. So I turned, turned pro in 1996 racing 125s over here, Grand Prix stuff. And did that for a couple of seasons and I moved to AMA racing in 2000 or excuse me, 1998. That wasn't, a, that wasn't a very good, my, my debut uh, race. I think I took out half the 250 field in the, in the bowl at, at uh, Phoenix <laughs> international raceway. So that, that didn't start out very well, but eventually I finished third in the 99 championship uh, fifth in 2000. And then I figured out that two strokes, you know, I wasn't going to go to Grand Prix. Um, and two strokes weren't the way in the U.S. They're going to be going away in a couple of seasons. So I went to 750s. But at the time, they had Super Sport. They had 600 Super Sport and 750 Super Sport, and then they had uh, Formula Extreme, which was thousands Super Bike, and uh, that morphed into Super Stock, and then that turned into thousand CC bikes. And the 750 stuff kind of it was you know the de facto Suzuki spec class with Suzuki 750. Um, and so 636 was in there too, but it was more or less a de facto super, um, Suzuki class. So that kind of went away to allow other, other manufacturers. But anyway, I, I raced that 750 stuff and then stock 1000. And then when, um, when all that went away, I went to Superbike. Like when, the, when DMG took everything over after the end of 2008, uh, 2009, I was forced into Superbike, which was a bit of an eye opener. Um, you know, from being a top three 
guy in super stock stuff to being, man, I was, I was struggling to crack the top 10 in Superbike. It was probably the transition for the tires or whatever. So then that at the end of that year, you know, after that transition, I was like, whoa, okay, I got to get more and more serious. And so I lost 20 pounds roll out in Daytona and was right there, you know, back competitive for the top five. And that was for me doing what I was doing, which I was still, I started managing uh, my own race team in 06 because I had struggled with some injuries after, after 2002, um, lost my ride at the end of 2003. And so that kind of forced me to go, okay, let's, let's, let's sort out the management side of this and the sponsorship acquisition side of this. And, um, you know, really kind of got going when I had some riders that came uh, that were, let's say client riders came over to the U S and we, we sorted out their programs and uh, I managed that part, part of everything, had my own, own program, sold different sponsorships from what team hammer is, which is my, my family's team and um, built the skill set while I was racing. And so then, um, um, you know, did that for, for a while. And I, that all got absorbed back into in the team hammer program when, uh, when my results became good enough that I have to do it. So, um, and then rode for Team Amber until, until I, uh, from 09 to, so I retired in 2016 again. But, you know, still had that skill set. Still, I still managed quite a bit of the team. Um, when we were the Geico team for um, 2012, uh, 13, 14, I was, I ran that little unit. So that was me and one other rider. In 2012, it was Martin Cardenas. In 13, it was Dane Westby. Um, and uh, 14 was Jake Zemke. So that was my, my little unit. And then uh, 15, you know, everything kind of started ramping up. And then 2016, I found myself, um, the team jumped from two or three riders to I think six. And I was pretty embedded in that. And it was like a lot of bandwidth getting sucked up doing that. Then I hurt myself preseason. And it was just <laughs> it's cascading, you know, it was, it was too much. It was, I was watching my results go backwards, thinking about other things besides what I had to do to be competitive. And, and I got the road Atlanta that season and I did Coda and, and Coda was like, okay, man, the lap times were, were okay. Everything was acceptable. The bike was good. You know, I, I, I had figured out my way out. I went to road Atlanta and kind of, kind of hit my ass with both hands. And it was like, but they were seven days apart. So you don't forget how to ride two weeks apart or right. five days apart. And it was this motivation. And I couldn't, I couldn't, I could no longer compartmentalize everything. And I was 36. My, sh- I, I, my shoulder, I, you know, wrecked my, my left shoulder going in the preseason. And that thing was good. The time we were doing two races in a day. And so um, there was 44 laps of racing that day. And there was, dude, I, maybe I had 12 laps in me, you know, before the thing went backwards. And so it was just compound, 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 called my dad and, and, the, and our crew chief, Keith Perry in there and just said, Hey man, guys, I'm, I'm out, I'm done. And we, and, uh, you know, coincidentally, Yoshimura had uh, brought Tony over to replace Jake Lewis, who got, who got uh, hurt preseason. And I'm like kind of looking around going, you know, Suzuki's got a problem over there. Uh, I got a problem over here. I'm going to replace myself with Jake Lewis and, you know, worked out a deal with Suzuki on it that did help them. Obviously it helped Tony and, um, you know, help Jake stay, stay in the game and, and honor everything. And, and so it, it worked out. And that was finally probably the point of my career where I was like, okay, I'm cool with, I found my replacement. I'm, I'm in, I'm, I'm done. I'm good. And step back. And it's been, it's been good. Cause I mean, I, I've, 
been able to help the business racing wise and everything. And, and frankly, I was done, you know, I, even now I'm thinking, man, it'd be kind of cool to go do a club race. I'm like, ah, whatever. Yeah, it's funny. I've, I spoke to a few people. Actually, it'd be great to have like a legends championship, wouldn't it? I actually mentioned that to, to Chuck Axton, one of the crazy ideas that, I, that I've had for things. You know, just get a, a one-off race. And I think in the past, even Stuart Higgs has talked about revamping the old um, the old Transatlantic series, wasn't it? Where yeah. uh, if you remember, there was th- those races years ago where you'd get half a dozen Americans coming over and uh, and they'd race at various various circuits. It'd be, yeah. it'd be cool to to do. You, you kind of answered the question I was going to ask you in terms of, you know, you know, was it easy to make peace with the fact that you were hanging up your leathers? But you, you, you kind of answered that. Um, we first met back in, uh, I want to say 2015, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it was before that. But um, 16. It was 16, wasn't it? Yeah, 16 maybe. Yeah, maybe it was when, when you did the wild card, didn't you, at World, uh, in World oh, Super- 2014. Was it 14? Wow. Because it was before that. I was trying to work it out. So you're honest, I I thought it was 15. Yeah, it could have been 14. And how was that for you, again, because, you know, you've uh, accomplished a lot in your career, both on track and off it. But you talk about jumping from, you know, the the production racing into superbikes. And that was an eye opener. Um, What was that experience like in world superbike? Because, again, I've gone back through statistics. And, you know, I like my statistics. I can't find any other full-time journalist who was a wildcard racer in a world superbike race. I mean, maybe there was one back in the day, but I can't find anybody. I mean, I mean, what, what was that like lining up on the grid in 2014 with the likes of Sylvan Gintoli and, and all these guys that you were on track with? I mean, was it, was it what you expected? Oh man. First off, those guys are fast. Um, <laughs> there's, there's a reason why they get, you know, I mean, Gintoli's a, a test rider now, but, um, Sykes and those guys. I think Sykes won both races that day. I'm not, not 100% sure. Um, I would say that um, my goal was to score points, which I, I failed at that. Um, I think I finished 16th one, one race and 17th the next. You were close like though, weren't you? You didn't um, sit by much. I was close enough. Very close, yeah, yeah. I was surprised that there are some full-timers that I actually out-qualified and everything because i mean our spec wasn't wasn't world super sport or super bike spec it was you know we didn't have high lift cams we didn't have you know a few other things and, and running production forks and like that for our rules and i was still i was running a magnetic morelli on that bike um with, with ride by wire which was you know pretty pretty trick um i don't you know i would have liked to done better but it was like how many people have started a world championship race? And, and we did it. Like the motivation behind it wasn't just, hey, I'm going to go do World Superbike because I want to do World Superbike. We were sponsored by Geico at the time. The AMA Pro uh, series run by DMG had no TV. And so I was working hard to meet my sponsorship obligations. And so I got the opportunity to do it. Um, and I did it because it was televised. And, and all that. I mean, that, that, that year, 2014, the only racing TV, only motorcycle road racing that was on TV was, was a three race series that was run by or promoted by, by Team Hammer Promotions. And we produced the TV um, and aired it on MAP TV when, when you have the, you know, so that was, we did three rounds of that. Uh, it was called the Superbike Shootout. Me and my, me and my family promoted that and, and it was more of a you know, the, the, here's Daytona Motorsports Group. Here are these guys that 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 are supposed to be you know, linked to NASCAR and whatever, and they can't seem to get their act together or put their racing series on TV. Well, the racing guys will do it, and that was a, that was a project that went from zero to a race in 90 days. 
then we got the TV. Uh, talk about something that was nuts. It was like, we're sitting on a plane, we're flying back for a shop visit. And me and my dad are talking about some stuff and I'm like, you know, you know man, I'm going to start a series. Okay. So the next thing you know, I got us, got us a, a, a meeting with the president of Mav TV. <laughs> we walked in there uh, thinking we knew a lot and turned out we didn't. And then by the end of the end of the meeting, we knew a lot more about TV and then all of a sudden we did our stuff. So anyway, a sidebar on the real superbike thing, but it was, um, we ran that, that series. And then I, I decided to do the real superbike thing just to get us, get us on TV. And I did that briefly. Um, and uh, man, I remember Gintoli coming by me late in the race uh, out of turn four and he turned the thing in, stopped it, parked it, and then fired it out. And I was just thinking, man, that pretty was fast. And he was fast and just the whole style. And, and I was kind of rolling it through there um, a little bit different. And, and, you know, so yeah, it would have been cool to have more time or, you know, higher spec equipment, but I did it. I showed up. You know, I didn't get completely smoked. I beat a couple of regular guys. Um, I was in the mix with a couple of regular guys. And, um, you know, it's cool. I had the experience. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, fast forward to, to 2020, obviously it's been a wretched year for COVID. Uh, we're not going to, don't start me off because that'll be a completely different show and I'll probably never yeah. work again if we uh, we start talking about COVID. But, uh, a lot of expletives. <laughs> absolutely. Even more so than the, the two-seater, right? Yeah. But, yeah. Um, one of the things I've got to talk about, uh, once we said that we were getting you on the show, a few people had said, oh, that's the guy that, that runs the Suzuki's in Supersport. And I think a lot of people are surprised uh, that Suzuki, A, still running Supersport, uh, but not just running Supersport, that you guys challenge for titles. And it's something that you have done for, for, for a number of years, uh, most recently uh, with Sean Dylan Kelly, uh, the young, uh, young teenager uh, from Miami, who uh, has, has been a revelation, I think, in, in Moto America, uh, along with a couple of other young riders that, that, that spring to mind, like Rocco Landers, uh, who I know you also have, have helped a little bit. Talk to us about the Suzuki in Supersport. It's a bike that we haven't seen in World Supersport since, uh, I think, the Finnish rider Emily Lati. Uh, had a race. Yep. I think the last podium in in World Supersport was probably on a Suzuki with um, with Alex Baldellini. I know Matthew Skoltz was was his teammate, so he's he's ridden the uh, the Suzuki in the past. But it's it's a long, long time since we've seen a Suzuki at the sharp end in Supersport. What is it with Moto America or the rules? Although I believe the rules are quite similar, but or is it your team? Why is Suzuki so competitive in America? Uh, it's, it's always been pretty good. Um, we, so the, our history of our team too, is since, since, you know, we became a Suzuki, uh, an official Suzuki team in, in 1986, we've been Suzuki team all, all but, uh, two years, thir 13 and 14 with that, uh, that Honda project that we did. Um, you know, there was always, the, so th there's a couple of reasons why this happens, right? There's always Yoshimura and Team Hammer. And we carved ourselves a niche by just going, okay, we are the endurance racing team in the U.S. for Suzuki for from officially from 1986 until about 1997, 98, 97, I believe. Um, and then uh, we ran another series called Formula USA, which was like a run what you brung gnarly, you know, still on TV, really good. Um, and then we kind of went full-time in the AMA stuff. And, and we were the team that did everything else. You know, um, even when Yoshimura had 600s and stuff, our, our 600s were a bit better than theirs. Um, and I think the last straw, I don't know, it was 07 or 08, we ran them out of class. <laughs> so we stopped, stopped using them because um, our stuff, 
but they, they, you know, at the time they had superbike, right? And they had the riders and the riders didn't necessarily want to race 600s. They wanted to race superbikes and, and blah, blah, blah. And like, dude, that was our bread and butter. We were racing. We didn't win in that class. We weren't on the podium in that class. Or we weren't on the podium in super stock. Or we weren't on the podium in Formula Extreme when that was around. We were, we weren't getting renewed. So we were the, um, you know, we were the, the, the support team. So we were the, the, we made sure we were better than all other support teams. And we, uh, we focused on what was important to us, which was making those, those motorcycles run fast and, and run fast and run, run fast legally. So, um, it just, just, we've been working with the platform for quite a while or, or right now. So I think the world super sport rules now, if I can't, I gotta go back and look, uh, but I believe you're allowed cams, uh, head porting and some other stuff for world super sport right now. And I think velocity stacks. So when they when we had those rules, it was we were still pretty competitive with the Yamahas. Um, Yamaha was a little bit better than us in terms of some top end stuff because they had uh, variable variable intakes. And the um, between sixteen and seventeen, they killed off the real super sport like roll and eliminated the velocity stacks. It was seventeen and eighteen. Like anyway, I gotta get my timeline. I don't have my timeline correct on that, but I know they changed the rule. And um, they uh, they eliminated the velocity stack part. They eliminated the the intake cams, the head work, and all that stuff. So we went back to more of a super stock, super sport rule. You know, you could do some compression and other stuff. And and that engine configuration, we have a lot of experience with because that was the, the same stuff as the old days. And additionally, like the platform's been around since 2011, and so. We won the championship in 2011 on it. We won the championship in 2012 on it. Um, and so when it went back to that spec, it's okay, we plug that in and then we had a, a nice baseline, different fuel now. And then we just continue to work on it and work on it and work on it. So uh, the rules help us quite a bit here. Um, additionally, we have a lot of information on the chassis. So we know we know what to do. We, we, have, the, we have the baseline, like we can plug anybody into that thing right now it's high level and we can have the thing set up within a couple, you know, a couple sessions. Um, so it, you know, we have the data, we have the baseline, we know the engine map, you know, our mapping's quite good and, um, you know, we know how to make it work and we know how to make it run. So, but I think more so globally, it's, it's the rules package of what we have. If, if, you know, a world super sport, if, you know, with, with the transition, right. I'd assume that if, if we were to go do something like that, right, with the new rules that are potentially coming from getting developed between BSB and whatever, we just run a 750. We can make that competitive too. Um, you know, there's some things that misses, right, but ride by wire or whatever. But I mean, we have pretty decent engine braking settings. We have clutch settings. It's quite good. So it just it's years and years of experience on the motorcycle. And additionally, it's it's a rules package that that helps the bike a little bit. Um, it doesn't hinder the other bikes. I mean, Yamaha is still, still pretty damn good. You saw this year, the Kawasaki won. Right. You know? um, and, and, you know, there's some adjustments coming for that, for the displacement stuff. Um, I think there's some, some adjustments coming for that displacement stuff. It's, it's coming down the pipeline. Um, but, you know, at, at the end of the day, right, that class is starting to evolve now. So we got to kind of look at the, what the next step is going to look like for, for the U.S. and all that. But I think we'll be able to turn a 750 into something that's competitive. I, I just rode, I rode the 765 for the magazine. And that's, man, that thing's quite a weapon. It's, it's good, good rules, you know, 
it's it's um it's got some good features in terms of electronics and all that stuff. And then I've ridden the 800 um, MV. That's that's another thing. And I've ridden the V2. So I kind of know I know the um, you know I know the baseline and the bar we have to get to um, if we're going to do something like that. So, but to answer your question, long long-winded answer. It's years and years and years and years of development, and we have the engine spec dialed. We, you know, and our rules, the Moto America rules, without those other allowances, and, you know, just kind of p- make everything pretty equal, and let's go down the road. No, I think it's great. I'm sure that the fans. I mean, obviously, we were treated this year in Europe to uh, to a lot of the, the Moto America races live on Eurosport, uh, which is something that's never happened before. Um, and I think that, that Moto Just America won a load of few. Yeah, one of the few cool things that come out of COVID. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I want to just focus very quickly. Just just two more questions for me, because I know we're, we're, we're rapidly running out of time. Um Bobby Fong obviously won the championship with you. He moved into Superbike, had a great year. Tony uh, obviously was his teammate. Uh, we, we know what a, a world-class rider uh, Tony is. Um, Tony's obviously announced he's moving on. Uh, what can you tell us about Bobby Fong? And if we switch back to Supersport, obviously Sean Dylan Kelly had another great season. Young Lucas Silver as well, a young kid. You know, you were talking uh, just a few moments ago about, you know, with, with our package on the Supersport bike, we can take a kid who's, you know, growing in his career that's still finding his feet and we can we can make him competitive and lucas was on the podium as well so i mean it's you know backing up with what you just said there with, with another young rider coming through what can you tell us about their programs uh for, for next year um you know one, one more thing to touch on that right the chassis the chassis on the suzuki i think a lot, most people that have ridden suzuki's at a pretty high level know it's a bit of a forgiving chassis too and so it, it's pretty sweet handling so once you get get past some of the glitz and glamour of of or ride by wire or auto blip or whatever you got, right. You got something that you can ride 19 laps really hard and, and gives you good front end feel. So I think that's also an advantage. We take something we take advantage of and, and the engine's pretty torquey too. So or torquey in the grand scheme of, 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 uh, of 600, 600 super sports stuff. But um, going back to that, we're still like the season ended pretty late and we're still kind of hammering things, things through. Um, and working on it, right? Obviously, you know, we like to continue with, with, with all of our guys. We like them, you know, one, one thing about being a family run team, right? You, you, you get these riders in and, and you, you help them grow in their career. Like we took Sean from having nothing to, to being able to make a living uh, racing motorcycles and, and extend his career after you ejected from the Red Bull rookies deal. And, um, or he timed out of the Red Bulls rookie deal. And, and so you kind of like, you, you have this and you build this relationship with these riders and you kind of come, come a little bit attached to them. And so it's like it bums you out when they, when they go somewhere else. So um, if the riders are doing a good job for us, we, we, we like to retain them, you know, especially uh, like you look at what we did with Bobby Fong, right? He was a, he was a, Fong was a guy that had been cast out. He was done. If we didn't hire him, he was done. And, you know, he never been a guy that really got a good chance on a good, on a good solid team that had a nice environment, like our environment, our team's pretty, pretty constructive. Um, um, you know, granted, if you're not doing well, you're going to have a, we're going to have a discussion, but it's supportive of the riders globally. Um, very, very, and it's, and we like to keep it calm and we know how it is to be, you know, I know how it is to be a racer and I don't want any, any crazy stuff going on. So, right. um, we, gave Bobby an opportunity to shine on a, on a, in a steady, stable platform. And, and, and he, he won a championship. And so when 
we were asked to take over the Superbike program. And we're sitting there and, and there are some requests for us to take certain riders and we went back in there and said, Hey, look, man, Bob did this for us. We're going to take Bob. And, um, we took him and he paid us back, you know? So, uh, he won three superbike races and on a podium, you know, you know, so it was, uh, that was a good decision. Um, as far as that goes, did, did really well. So we like, to, we like to be loyal to our guys, you know, as, as loyal as, as we can be. And, and, you know, of course the riders, riders are the type types that are onto the big shiny thing or whatever they got, you know? So, um, but uh, I anticipate uh, the lineup to be pretty similar for, for 2021. And, and, you know, we're talking, we're talking a little bit about what, what the plan is to, uh, to replace Tony. Um, but there's, man, there, the crazy thing about global, like the global environment and racing to right now is there's more riders, more high level, gnarly high level riders out there that don't have rides than do. Yeah. And so, I mean, I got a list of guys that's like, well, you know, every year too, like, like it's since I've, since I've become in this position, uh, Mr. Vice President or whatever, whatever they, my, my fancy title is, you know, um, the, uh, I found myself in some, some meetings that I was like, I never thought I would ever be in some meeting, you know, I'm sitting there talking to, to agents. I was at the GP a couple of years ago and went back on the Tuesday of the test day and, you know, talked to some riders agent that was, that I never thought would ever be interested in racing for our team. Um, and it was just opportunity, right place at the right time or whatever. But I mean, maybe I was, I was short change in how good the team is. You know, obviously I was, <laughs> In, in terms of that, because um, what we what we what we do and what we've been every year, you know, try to try to be humble about that kind of stuff. But um, there's more there's more really high level riders right now globally that that don't have rides than do, and, and it's, you know there's more, there's less quality seats, and so we're um, we're in a good position as far as finding a high level guy for Tony's replacement. But nothing's nothing's done yet, and we got to little bit more work to do i have all that stuff sorted out before before that year ends and it's and the weird thing about america right you got MotoGP guys doing stuff in in april and may and june and whereas the u.s it's like if you're you got everything sorted by january you're ahead of the curve so which is uh unfortunate but it's kind of been that way for a long time yeah, for sure. Final question, because we are uh, rapidly running out of time. And so final question for me uh, is really about uh, the, the level of riders in, in America. We've seen Garrett Gerloff uh, make the jump. Uh, again, those armchair racers saying he wouldn't do anything. Well, uh, he proved them wrong, didn't he? Three podium finishes uh, this season for Garrett. Uh, Front-running performance. He he then debutized for, for Valentino Rossi and really showed what he could do on the, uh, on the MotoGP bike. Cameron Bobier turned his back on on uh, on Superbike, which is something I didn't think would happen. I honestly thought Cameron would would come to World Superbike, and he's gone the Moto Two route again. I've, you've probably seen the the testing times that he did. He was within a second of the fastest times, never had him, never having really ridden a prototype for more than half a decade. So uh, Joe Roberts has already been on the the front row pole positions right at the sharp end. The future's looking good for American races again. It's it's been a bit of a lull, but it, it's coming back, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. I think we have the, we've always had the talent. Um, it's just whether or not we had the had the feeder stuff like the, you know, Joe. We know Joe was good. Joe came through our program, you know, in 2013 and 2014, and so we we knew he had the skill set. He just needed to go back and get the right opportunity, um, and get his mindset in the right place. Uh, 
Gurloff, what he did at the end of last year, yeah, it was it was he was better than Cam at the end of last year and, and launched himself over at World Superbike. He, he took the risk, right? He took the risk. And by the end of the year, it, it, he made it happen. Um, uh, you know, man, I don't the I don't I don't really have a good handle on on why the attitude has changed, right? Because I mean, we. Team Hammer, my family, um, my dad was, we were the people that launched uh, John Hopkins over to the, to the Red Bull WSM, WCM team. He rode for us for, for three seasons, 99, 2000, 2001. And, and Peter Clifford called my dad up and was like, hey man, I need another Kevin Schwantz. So we developed him and he was riding 500s during that time. And they he did a great job for Americans. And so, I mean, at the same time, you know, Kenny Jr. was over there and, and uh, Edwards is coming from World Superbike, and then Nikki went over there. And so we had some pretty solid guys, but I don't, you know, the other countries stepped it up. There's probably some political things that we don't see behind the scenes. Um, you know, but we've always had good, good riders. I mean, Bobier, man, Bobier's, Bobier's got the stuff as far as that. He, he, is, he is quite good. So is Gerloff. And I think that, uh, you know, we get a couple of these other guys over there if, 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 Cam does well in Moto Two. Um, Gerloff's doing well. I think that's going to knock the knock the kick the door down for us. Um, and Joe, obviously going to the Talatrans team. Buddy Robertino Pietro runs that team, so we talk a little bit about what's going on over there. And, and it's it could be a new new day, you know, new age. But what our job is over here in the U.S. is to develop these riders to the point where they can go do that. And so that means. Um, you know, we got, we got the guys, you know, kicking down the doors and, and leading the charge where, you know, my, my team's responsibility is to make sure that we have professional riders that can go over there and uh, they know what they're looking at with data acquisition. They know how to set their motorcycle up. They know how to train. They know how to do all these things, these skill sets that you need to do, need to have if you want to be a professional motorcycle racer. So, you know, if you come into my team at, at cold, right, and you, maybe you need some some tuning up on your program, but you got the good talent, we can sort it out. Right? We'll teach you how to use data. We'll teach you how to train. Um, you don't have a trainer or whatever, or, or you know, if your trainers uh, doesn't know what to do in terms of with motorcycle stuff, we can we can we have that experience too. So, um, our job in the U.S. as a Moto America team is to be a feeder for that kind of stuff. If the opportunity comes and train the riders up to the best we can, right? We had Rocco come through our SV. Uh, 650 program with a twin won the, won the championship. And I think that was the first time he'd seen real data. You know, Sean Dillon Kelly, the first day that he tested with us, I picked him up in Atlanta a couple of days after the, the end of the Red Bull Rookies uh, Cup season in 2018. Came over there and it was like the first, you know, I, I was actually working with him on the data stuff, um, you know, when he was testing our bike and reading everything, just because more so I ended up doing that because it was a, a personnel, you know, lack of personnel. And I was, I was, We'd added them to the test, and I wanted to have you know pretty good handle on what was going on and, and be up close to the program. But it was it was an eye opening experience with that stuff. And then you go on a superbike, right? That gives you the opportunity with all working with swing arm pivots and all that other stuff to to be able to figure out what what a pivot does, what a link does, what what offset, what rate cut, you know, all those all the crazy technical stuff that you have to do. And in, in, in addition to the, the electronics, so. We have the we have the equipment. We have the training ground. I think the the level of rider we have is quite high, and you know those guys are proving it. And so we get a few more opportunities over there. Uh, maybe we ship the Sean Dillon Kelly over or, or um, 
you know, or Rocco or, or whoever else, you know, whoever else is looking pretty good. I mean, I, I think that a guy like Fong, um, like Fong can make it happen. I think Heron too, Josh Heron, you know, he went over and did that Moto2 thing. And I think he got himself in a bad situation with that team um, in terms of, you know, maybe being the second rider and not getting, getting everything he, he needed to get um, the support that he needed to have to, to thrive. And so, um, but I think even he can, he can, he can do the business, you know, he's, he's quite good. So um, there's a lot of good riders here. Escalante is quite good. You know, he won the super sport championship this year, but he, Escalante's level surprised me because he, he was a bit inconsistent on the Yamaha, but then he comes in this year and, and does quite well. And so, I think we have the talent. We have the correct structure and the equipment and stuff to make stuff happen. It's just we need someone someone over there to to do well enough that they go, oh, okay. Because I mean, like, the American stuff too, it's out of sight, out of mind. You know, it's like, oh, it's just Americans over there. And, and um, now it's oh, it's America. We're going to pay attention because Garrett Gerloff's on the podium and, right. and doing well. And Cam Cam's in there. I, th- I think that. In the GP paddock, you know, what, what Joe's doing and, and how, how Cam does is going to determine what happens, what kind of opportunities are available for, for Americans going forward. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, Chris, as I said, I, I could chat for another hour. We haven't got time because we've got another guest to, to get to, but uh, yeah. it's been a pleasure to, to catch up. And uh, fingers crossed uh, these COVID restrictions lift and I'll be able to be trackside again for Moto America because I had a blast in, in 2019 and I was just so bummed this year that I couldn't make it out. And uh, who knows, you might even, uh, if, if we can get a bleeper that works in the helmet, we might even get a second two-seater lap that we can actually <laughs> use some footage, uh, uh, which would be yeah. but, uh, Seriously, uh, Chris, thank you so, so much for, for taking the time out. And I'm sure uh, we'll get some great feedback from our listeners, uh, especially from some of the, the technical stuff and the insight that you've given. Uh, so, uh, Take care of yourself, and, and hopefully, uh, in uh, in a couple of months, uh, we'll, we'll catch up uh, trackside. Yeah, hopefully. Happy holidays. We'll, we'll talk soon. Thanks, Chris. Thanks to my guests this week, to Alistair Fagan and to Chris Ulrich. I'm sure you'll all agree what a great way to start the 2021 season. We'll be back in a couple of weeks' time with Bradley Gravitt and Dominic Doyle, who will be the next two guests on the Vroom podcast. Vroom, your weekly motorsport fix podcast, is produced by Michael Hill edited by Gareth Bouch of Vroom Media. The music is by The Rain Dogs and it's a production of Michael Hill Promotions.